This is Plugs Play Pedagogy. I'm Kyle Stedman, your host, and I want to start out by playing you a short clip from a guy named Charlie Weinberg. Uh, I'm Charlie Weinberg, and I'd like to talk about my first and what I think will be my last experience with podcasting. Um, A couple years ago, I was going out to New York City to visit some friends, specifically a girl that I had uh, sort of been talking to and had kind of a crush on, and she worked for NPR um, through the StoryCorps program that records conversations between friends and publishes them on NPR um, at Grand Central Station in New York, and I took the, the red eye out there stayed up all night, ended up landing in LaGuardia at like 8 a.m., met her at her booth um, in Grand Central Station, and uh, had a really bad interview, um, partly because I was sort of nervous about meeting this person, partly because I hadn't slept in a day. Um, And so trying to make myself sound interesting, I wound up just babbling on and on. after the interview, they give you a copy of the CD um, you can keep, and I destroyed it. But I know that there's this other copy somewhere out there. I think they put it in the Library of Congress or something like that. So I'm interested in getting my hands on that and destroying it as well. I think there's a lot I could say about this clip, why it's interesting to me. This idea of the the nostalgia aspect of me remembering having crushes on girls and going really, really far lengths to get there. I remember those feelings of creating something, of composing something, of recording something and being embarrassed, wanting to destroy it. I actually have a little bit more information about Charlie. I know that he was born in 1980, the same year that I was born. So I also feel some sort of connection. Uh, This is actually audio of a video. I can see Charlie telling this story and I can see his WrestleMania 5 t-shirt and I can remember growing up playing my WrestleMania game on the Nintendo Entertainment System. So what am I talking about here? Why Why am I telling this? Well, actually, I've accessed Charlie's story, and I have the ability, the legal ability to share it with you because I got it at the Digital Archive of Literacy Narratives, the D-A-L-N. Today's show is all about the D-A-L-N, what it is, where it came from, what it's all about. Well, let me use their words. The D-A-L-N is a publicly available archive of personal literacy narratives in a variety of formats, text, video, audio, that together provide a historical record of the literacy practices and values of contributors as those practices and values change. I think most people listening to this don't need me to define literacy practices, but one thing I love about the D-A-L-N is that it is really broadly defined. Any place where you were learning about how to read and write in some way broadly defined, some way that you were learning how to understand yourself in a situation and then speak back into that situation to create something in that context that could be deemed effective for your audience there. Well, why are we talking about it here? Well, well, one, it's an important project going on, especially on the digital side of rhetoric and composition studies. Every time I go to a conference, I see a little booth where I can sit down and tell a story, long or short, of a time in my life, a specific narrative about a time that I saw myself learning some sort of literacy, especially but not related to some sort of reading or writing, composing, creating sort of world. So I, it's, it's in my mind, it's in my face, and I... 
especially at the beginning when I didn't know much about it, I would say, oh, I wonder wonder what that is. Um, maybe do, do I want to make eye contact with those people? I mean, they look nice, but but do I not? So so I want to explain to you, if you see them at your conference, what in the world is going on there? But, you know, this, this show is also called Plugs Play Pedagogy. So I want to think about specifically how can these narratives be used in class? And I know that word used feels a little funny there. It's not, it's not like I want to say like, haha, these, these people have shared their work and now I want to put it to new uses of my own. But you know what? There's an extent to which this archive is designed to allow that. When people agree to archive their narratives, whether they're um, written, recorded, videoed, audioed, whatever, they're also agreeing to allow future researchers to use their work. It's already been IRB cleared. It's also allowing people like me, like you, to use these in new ways. Now, a, a lot of them are licensed by Creative Commons, which, of course, have different specific kinds of licenses. But some of them, including Charlie's that we just heard, are, are deeded to the public in a slightly different way, not using Creative Commons, but still allowing me to reuse, remix it, as long as I'm giving credit to him or giving credit to the DALN. Also, if you've been listening to the show, you know that I love stories. I mean, my last episode was all about narratives of, of where we compose. I love the personal angle on what work we do. And I think, I think there's a, a mysterious sort of way that when we hear narratives, when we experience them, when we share them, when we uh, have our students write them or compose them and we, we write them and compose them, I think we, we have a, a fleshed out human real way of understanding the kind of work that we have embarked on in this field. Makes sense. So I'm gonna I want to tell the story in three parts going to the experts. First, we're gonna hear an interview with Cindy Self and Scott DeWitt, who are talking a little bit about the history of the DALN and also about a really exciting digital book that that could only have happened with the DALN, uh, completely focused on it. Um after that, we'll hear some specific suggestions about how to use this in the classroom through the story, the narrative, the literacy narrative of, I don't know, of Ben McCorkle, who is one of the current co-directors of the DALN. Then finally, we'll hear an interview with Michael Harker and Kate Comer, who are going to be talking about an, a forthcoming article in Computers and Composition in which they do some really interesting studies on how teachers are using the DALN. So we have to hear that too. Three parts three narratives of their own really exciting stuff. So let's dive in to part one. You're going to hear now from Cindy Self and Scott DeWitt about stories that speak to us, exhibits from the Digital Archive of Literacy Narratives. It's an online book that's published by the Computers and Composition Digital Press. And if you're like, I don't know about the Computers and Composition Digital Press, first, where have you been? For goodness sakes, you need to be reading these books, experiencing these books, letting them wash over you in all their digital multimodality. Um, go to ccdigitalpress.org. Uh, for this book specifically, go to ccdigitalpress.org slash stories. Don't you love easy to communicate out loud URLs? Now that I have a podcast, I totally do. So we're going to hear Scott and Cindy tell the story of their book, but they're going to get into a little bit by telling us more about the foundations of the Digital Archive of Literacy Narratives. Here they are. Well, hi, this is Cindy Self. Hi, this is Scott DeWitt, and we're both on the Columbus campus at Ohio State University. And we're here to talk a little bit today about the Digital Archive of Literacy Narratives and how that can be used as a resource in composition classrooms. So it seems that 
before we actually talk about how we might use it in a composition class. And in a bit, we're going to talk about a, a particular research project that has grown out of the Digital Archive of Literacy Narratives. I'm wondering, Cindy, if you might tell us a little bit of the backstory of how the DALN came to be, um, where your idea came from, how what were some of those um, initial hurdles that we had to get over in order to get the DALN started? Well, when I first came to the Ohio State campus, um, one of the things that you and Louie and I talked about, Louie Ullman and I talked about over a dinner, as a matter of fact, was the fact that as a profession, we didn't have any collection of narratives, firsthand autobiographical narratives about literacy, about reading and composing, and how these things happened in real life and how they were connected with the lived experiences of individuals. So we conceived during that dinner of the Digital Archive of Literacy Narratives, which was an online collection of stories about reading and composing and how reading and composing uh, had a connection to the lives of individuals. And we started uh, with an IRB, an Institutional Review Board application. We created the interface for the Digital Archive of Literacy Narratives. We field tested that archive, and then we started seeding it with a whole bunch of different kinds of narratives, narratives from deaf and hard of hearing, people with Brenda Brueggemann's help, narratives from black women academics with Beverly Moss's help, narratives from autistic self-advocates with Melanie Yergo's help. Um, And I think that I started getting really involved in the project at that same time because I was the director of the first year writing program at Ohio State. And I started to, to see immediate value in this archive. And that value had many, many different um, aspects to it. So the first was that I started looking at some of the writing that we asked students to do on the very first day of class. And in a lot of ways, this writing was to get a sense of who our students were, what kind of writing they were, um, skills they were bringing to the class. And what I realized is that many of the prompts that we were asking them to respond to were asking them in many ways to write literacy narratives. And it seemed a shame that those literacy narratives that were so rich, full of stories and information and really um, important important data about our students in some way, um, and these just really valuable stories, that they were stopping with the individual teachers. And so I started to think, well could we actually think of ways of starting to populate this archive with all of this writing that hundreds and hundreds of students were doing at Ohio State? And we knew that these stories would be valuable not only to the people who told them, the students who talked about their own lives and their own literacies, and the teachers who taught these students, but also to people like um, graduate teaching assistants who were approaching the time when they had to step into the classroom, but perhaps these graduate students, because they were such gifted writers themselves, hadn't even uh, participated in a first-year composition class themselves as students, and so were entering the classroom with very little background in what kind of students, who they were, what they brought to the classroom in terms of literacy. Um, So, 
those stories were valuable as well to graduate teaching assistants. And I think a lot of composition instructors also um, want the study of literacy to be a integral part of their writing courses. And so, you know, we can find a lot of scholarly articles about literacy, but what these instructors were always struggling to find would be um, actual literacy narratives, those stories in some kind of an archive that they could actually pull some of these stories out and ask their students to do careful reading of the story and to, and to learn more about literacy um, from those stories itself. So um, this archive also started to serve composition instructors right from the start um, as providing some content for their writing classes that they were always struggling to find. And you know, it gave a much broader range of stories to talk about, uh, narratives about literacy, than maybe the 25 students uh, an instructor had in a particular class. They were rich narratives, but they came from all different directions. Some of them were from first-year composition students, but some of them were from tattoo artists, and some of them were from people who never went to college, and others of them were from people who just sent in narratives online to talk about. And then, you know, it didn't take too long before people teaching courses that might be considered writing courses in areas outside of like first year composition or a second year composition um, class didn't take too long for them also to find some real value. So I teach a lot of digital media composing and I was looking for some very real world opportunities for students to really get out and learn how to do some field work. That was about how to use the technology. That was how to, be, how to get good quality recording. That was how to put a subject at ease and to invite more conversation. Um, and it was really hard for me to find those um, lower stake opportunities to be able to teach some of those skills to students. And the DALN really served those purposes because they could actually gather really, really great narratives to help populate the archive. But they themselves as um, ethnographers, as, um, as people who are trying to collect stories, learned a lot about doing that work. And then I also started talking to people who were creative writers who were trying to think about um, accents or phrases or turns of phrase and figures of speech. Um, and they could start searching the archive um, and start listening to real language and starting to understand the rhythms of the way that people speak as they were trying to represent those same language patterns in the characters that they were writing about in their stories. But it didn't take us too long to figure out that we were putting a lot of things into the digital archives, um, but it was hard to get things out. That is, by the time we got to 4,000 or 5,000 narratives, we started to realize that teachers were faced with a very huge task when they open the archive. How do I make sense of these narratives? How do I help students make sense of these narratives? How do we put these narratives together in a way that helps us uh, accumulate some sort of understanding of literacy as it crosses the boundaries between individuals' particularized lived experiences? And that's why we wrote the stories that speak to us. It was an attempt um, to that Scott DeWitt and Louis Ullman and I made to um, t 
take materials out of the DALN, a small subset of materials, an exhibit, for example, and to curate that exhibit, to look at two or three different narratives and find out what they had in common or how we could talk about them in a critical way. And, you know, I remember when we were um, first imagining the project of how locked in we were to the idea of a book. Um, we knew that the whatever it is that we produce ne- needed to be digital because a majority of the artifacts and the and the narratives that are in the DALN are digital, and we wanted to be able to represent those in their digital form. Um, we were um, imagining the computers and composition digital press as the space where we wanted to publish the work. Um, but we were still we were so locked into that notion of the book and things like pages and chapters, and we kept using the languages the language of books um, until I think it was a conversation that I overheard with you and Louis, where we actually started to think about this this notion of well, what do people do at museums or where they have collections, yeah. and this idea of all of that work is sitting in some kind of an archive or sitting in some kind of a, a space. But somebody who curates it pulls selected works out and puts that on display for an audience and and writes a narrative about those narratives or about those works of art and tries to make sense of it in that way. So that was a real breakthrough for us, I think, when we stopped thinking mostly about book metaphors and we started thinking about that idea of curated exhibits and really helped us to work with the materials that were in this archive in a way that we were all kind of struggling. And isn't it funny that the our definition of authoring began to extend to the notion of curation. Curation is a way of making sense, a way of authoring, using existing materials and arranging and rearranging them in a kind of bricolage and then doing analysis or doing some deep reading of those materials to make new kinds of sense. So one of my favorite chapters in the stories that speak to us was Scott's chapter, uh, which is called Optimistic Reciprocities. Can you talk a little bit about that one, Scott, and just let people know what we were trying to do with that one? Sure. And what it, and you it, were trying to do. Well, and it goes back to where we started just a few minutes ago. Um, I was directing the first year writing program at Ohio State, and we had, um, as much like Cindy was saying, Our instructors, most of whom were new to Ohio State, many of them were new to Ohio, and many of them had never taken a first-year writing course, they kept coming to the first-year writing program staff during their training and asking, just who are these students who we're going to be meeting in a week? And we found that we had all this demographic information. Ohio State had all kinds of of statistics and uh, all kinds of information about the students' ACT scores and um, what kind of high schools they came from and and, um, other statistics like that. But it wasn't really providing the answer to the question. And so we decided to... um, to create a, a collection in the DALN where we wanted to talk to brand new freshmen who had not yet taken a course at Ohio State. So they, they, they had accepted, they were coming in the fall, but they hadn't started taking any coursework at Ohio State. And so we emailed everybody who was within um, maybe striking distance of the campus, people who might drive in if they were willing to give us this interview. And we didn't get a huge number, but we did get a a really great response for those students. 
And we asked them to sit down in front of a camera and to provide us with some answers to some questions. And those questions were about um, their experience um, writing in school, their experience writing outside of school. And we collected those and we produced a 25-minute documentary that we then showed to the first, um, the brand new teachers. Um, and it was amazing how much more, um, how much more um, interesting and how much more um, rich those stories were, how much more the teachers really got a sense of who their students were and how um, really interesting their students were. I mean, the statistical information the university was providing us was not very interesting other than how you would read stats, but these were stories. Students were telling us these fascinating stories. So, you know, it served that purpose. And then when we started stories that speak to us, I thought, okay, I've got this collection of these stories here. I need to start making sense of this. And what I what I would love to see is more and more first-year writing directors across the country doing this same, collecting these same kind of narratives and doing some research. I became interested in um, some work from um, the field of um, neuroscience and cognitive psychology that was looking at optimism, the way that we imagine positive outcomes in the future. And I started to wonder, were these students talking about writing in the idea of a kind of a future tense of where their writing might go and what, how they were imagining their writing might be, um, might be received from an audience? And it was really quite fascinating to see that those students who um, had been writing for real-world audiences who were getting real feedback for, on their writing, the way that they were actually talking about writing in these very, very optimistic terms in ways that had we not been paying attention and had we not been collecting those narratives, we could have easily fallen back on some of those narratives, those cultural narratives about students who don't want to take first-year writing, students who don't like writing, students who don't have a lot of experiences with writing. And what we found is that these students actually were very eager to take writing classes. They had a lot to say about writing. They were um, very, very enthusiastic about writing. And for them, writing had very little meaning unless they could actually imagine a very real audience on the other end. They wanted their, their work to have this wider audience. Um, and so I, I used that some of that um, research from neuroscience and cognitive psychology and did a, used that as my kind of framework for looking at some of these narratives and then started to take that. After I did some of the close reading, I started to make some arguments about ways that we might think differently about designing first-year writing programs and the curricula that we were asking students to participate in. It's funny, isn't it? Um, stories are laden with so much information about individuals, about the cultures in which they read and compose, about their past experiences, about the futures that they envision. Uh, stories, Jerome Bruner tells us, are ways of telling ourselves into being. So if we listen to the stories that people tell us about literacy, we get a picture of what they want to be like in terms of their reading and composing, and their stories give us that picture in such an amazingly rich way. So, you know, the other thing that I think was so interesting about working on that project is that we asked, there were things that we asked everybody to do. We asked them to work with a small set of narratives from the DALN. 
we asked them to think about a framework, a, a lens that they would use, um, that they could use to read these narratives and to um, make some modest claims that the, that the data would actually support, that the evidence would support. And then we asked them to imagine um, how they would present this exhibit in some kind of a digital format without giving them templates. We did not want every single exhibit to look exactly the same. Um, it needed to be able to be delivered online in one way or another. And for me, that's where this project got really interesting, is watching to see how it is that people who always thought of themselves strictly as authors, as writers, in some of these very narrow terms, when we started talking about exhibits and that they were curators and that we we weren't giving them a template so that everybody's work was going to look the same, how those things played out. It was one of the first times uh, for many authors when they collected information or used collected information in the DALN and then reported on that information in the medium, in the medium in which it was collected. So it wasn't a flattening of information from digital video or digital audio to print to the two dimensions of a printed page, but it was using the digital audio and video in its native format to report and to reflect. And I think that makes the book a very special collection and one of which the Computers and Composition Digital Press is very proud indeed. You just heard from Cynthia L. Self, who is a humanities distinguished professor in the Department of English at Ohio State University. You can always contact her at self.2 at osu.edu. Doesn't that sound nice out loud? How, how many people have an email address that sounds like that? Self.2osu.edu. I mean, I, I really like it. You also heard from Scott Lloyd DeWitt, Associate Professor of English at the Ohio State University. He tweets sometimes, usually only when he's attending conferences, at Scott Lloyd DW. You know Lloyd has two L's and Scott has two T's, right? I don't need to spell that for you. you you're on it. Awesome. Let's move on to part two. One way to use the DALN in your classroom. We're going to hear from Ben McCorkle. So I'm in the middle of preparing a syllabus for a course that starts next semester, basically a week from the time of this recording. Holy cow, that's soon. Ugh. Anyway, the course is English 4569, or Digital Media and English Studies. And depending on who teaches it, this course can take a variety of forms. A course might focus on digital video editing or the rhetoric of data visualizations or critical analyses of digital activist practices, that sort of thing. But from the outset, I knew I wanted to tie my version pretty closely to the digital archive of literacy narratives. I mean, since I recently transitioned in as one of the project's co-directors, it only makes sense, right? So I set out to design a curriculum that allows students to experience the various points of entry afforded by the DALN. See, the DALN by design accommodates various audiences, teachers, scholars, people who just want to tell their stories. And so in part, I wanted to give my students that experience. Not to mention, the DALN also has a pretty robust stockpile of teaching resources to draw upon readings, sample lessons, model assignments, and so on. I wanted to take advantage of those as well because, hey, between you and me, it helps cut down on prep time. The idea behind the course is to experience the DALN in a phrase from soup to nuts. 
in addition to the obvious reading, responding, discussing portion of the class, I'm also asking students to complete several assignments that place them in those various spots. I'm first asking them to craft their own literacy narratives, which they'll potentially submit to the archive if they'd like. And here I'm specifically requiring them to do something multimodal in nature to encourage them to both play with the technology and also to think more deliberately about how narratives are constructed artifacts. Second, I'm asking them to work in small teams to conduct field collections of other people's literacy narratives so they can experience ethnographic field work and develop their interview skills. As a way of promoting the activity of the course, I'll also ask them periodically to supply us with social media content, which we'll push to various outlets, such as the DALN Facebook site and the Twitter stream. Lastly, I'm having students develop their own research projects, much in the vein of the curated exhibit model or genre that you'd find in the edited collection, Stories That Speak to Us. And by the end of the course, if all goes as planned... The students will have seen the DALN from several different angles, looking in, looking out, standing alongside, and hovering above it. So hopefully you can see a logic to this design. I'm having them build upon a set of skills and central intellectual questions, technical, creative, pedagogical, analytical. In a way... The design of this course is an attempt to enact what Michael Bamberg talks about in his 1997 article, Positioning Between Structure and Performance, when he writes, Thus, in conversations, due to the intrinsic social force of conversing, people position themselves in relation to one another in ways that traditionally have been defined as roles. More importantly, in doing so, people produce one another and themselves situationally as social beings. That's not him, by the way. I just had a friend help me add a little oral texture to this segment. But the point is that I think there's an interesting parallel between what we do intuitively as social creatures whenever we interact and a course design that manufactures or makes visible that very process. In other words, my goal here is to explicitly foreground the different roles my students will play in these different assignments, creating a kind of theoretical through line that will inform our debriefings and reflective discussions. Ultimately, this gets at some pretty heady philosophical terrain, the notion of self being socially constructed and negotiated, the role narrative plays in reifying ideology, you know, that kind of stuff. In my opinion, we ought to bring our students in, particularly our undergrads, to participate in projects like the DALN, because it's a chance for them to do authentic work in English studies, not just exercises that ask them to pretend like they're scholars. To my mind, my students will be entering a kind of DALN apprenticeship, and I'd like to think they could walk away from the experience with a real sense that they've contributed and learned valuable things about literacy and learning in the process. And of course, as Cindy is so fond of saying, it's of immense value to the profession. On behalf of the DALN and Plugs Play Pedagogy, I'm Ben McCorkle. That was Ben McCorkle, who's an associate professor of English at OSU Marion. You can find him mucking about on Twitter at Iliac. That's I-L-L-I-A-C. He's also one of the current co-directors of the DALN. Obviously, a smart guy. 
Now let's move on to part three, the DALN in practice. You're going to hear from Kate Comer and Michael Harker about a forthcoming article they have in Computers and Composition. It's called The Pedagogy of the Digital Archive of Literacy Narratives, colon, a survey. It's in the March 2015 issue, which is currently available online at Elsevier, even though the issue isn't 100% finished yet at the time that I'm recording this. It's volume 35, pages 65 to 85. Again, doesn't that sound nice out loud? Volume 35, 65 to 85, Pedagogy Archive Narratives. Narratives. Okay, here, here they are. I'm Michael Harker, and I'm a uh, assistant professor of English at Georgia State University. And I'm Katie Comer. I am an assistant professor of English at Barry University. And we're talking to you today about a forthcoming article entitled "The The Pedagogy of the Digital Archive of Literacy Narratives." A survey, and we're going to report on the results of our survey in this podcast. But before we do that, uh, we'd like to talk with you a little bit about how we became interested in the Digital Archive of Literacy Narratives and how we're connected to the archive itself. So the Digital Archive of Literacy Narratives is located at daln.osu.edu, and it's an online, publicly available archive that includes stories about literacy development. I became interested in the DALN several years ago as part of my teaching and started using it in the classroom to teach students about various forms of ways to approach literacy studies, various theories and various characterizations of literacy, and slowly became to volunteer for the DALN at various conferences and became uh, more involved with it over time. And now I'm an incoming co-director of the Digital Archive of Literacy Narratives with Ben McCorkle. And I got started with the Digital Archive actually right when it began. I was a research assistant for Cindy and Louie during their first year of seeding the archive, which was an amazing experience because I got to watch the project develop from its inception and then become what it has now become, which is huge. I think there are something 5,000 narratives in there. And we got started actually creating the first narratives by interviewing a series of deaf and hard of hearing professors and students at The Ohio State University. At the time, I was studying narrative and rhetoric, and so I became interested in the other side of the archive, which were the actual stories and what people thought they were communicating and how they were communicating it to a public space. And so, like Michael, I've also been involved in working with the DALN at conferences and collecting things, and I've been using it in my classes as well. And both of us, you know, naturally fell into conversation with people at these events about how they were using the DALN. And we got to talking with each other about the diversity of those experiences and how we could begin to capture some of that conversation. Exactly. And so in a lot of ways, what we wanted to do is we wanted to capture, on the one hand, the, the enthusiasm and the rapid growth of the DALN and document that, but we also wanted to know more and kind of understand the fundamental nature of the activities, in particular the research and pedagogy that was growing up around this archive. As it was getting bigger and bigger every year, we were hearing more and more about the ways that people were using it in the classroom, but we weren't completely sure what exactly people were doing in the classroom. And so that curiosity about understanding the fundamental nature of the pedagogy that was beginning to sustain 
uh, the digital archive of literacy narratives growth became the focus of this research study. And that was just one of the exigencies for a survey that we carried out. So we won't go into the details of our method or our literature review, both of which you'll find in Computers and Composition in March of 2015. Basically, what we did was survey nationally people we knew who were using the DALN and anyone that we could reach via electronic channels. So based on that survey, we came up with four categories of the most common uses of the DALN in pedagogy. Um, Michael, why don't you tell us about the most common? It's probably not too surprising that our survey revealed that the most common way that the DALN is used is as an archive, which means that it allows both students and instructors to work alongside one another to analyze and populate the archive with literacy narratives. And so in this way, instructors were using the archive in order to give students access to uh, materials, existing narratives, but also allowed them to function as curators, um, collecting narratives that are related to particular thematic commitments, and then uploading them to the archive. And in often cases, other teachers would then use those for the focus for their courses. So the flip side of that was as an archive, the DALN also became a sort of prompt for student production. And that was the second most common use was students using the DALN as a, as a public space into which they contributed their literacy narratives. That process usually involved first students being audiences, reading, listening to, watching other people's literacy narratives as a sort of point of invention or a process of invention using those examples to help them generate topics and themes, but also narrative strategies. Uh, rhetorical resources were as much of a consideration in some cases as content. So students, after being audiences of each other's narratives, would then become rhetors themselves, and they would create their own literacy narratives. Sometimes they were, these were in writing traditionally, but more often they were multimodal. So students were able to use digital media to tell their stories with a variety of resources for different rhetorical effect. And, you know, a promising but probably less commonly documented use of the DALN was that it was used as a site for teacher training or that it was a resource for teachers and administrators. And one of the more exciting examples comes from Scott Lloyd DeWitt, his study, Optimistic Reciprocities, the Literacy Narratives of First-Year Writing Students, which is in the Stories That Speak to Us collection, offers additional perspectives on the DALN and how it was used as an administrative resource. In particular, DeWitt used the DALN as not so much a, an archive to populate with stories about literacy, but as a means to an end, in particular as a way to introduce new incoming GTAs to the attitudes, preferences, and kind of general disposition of the students that they would be teaching as first-year writers. And so DeWitt was able to use it as an administrative resource as part of his teacher training program at Ohio State. And the final category we creatively termed wildcard because we were kind of cheating. These were the pieces of the puzzle that were hard to categorize because it turns out people are using the DALN for all kinds of critical contextualizing whatever topics they're engaging in the classroom. So, for example, one respondent talked about using the DALN in a course on African-American literary history. 
They actually pulled narratives that discussed literacy and slavery and juxtaposed them against slave narratives. In other cases, people were using the DLN to help students make connections between literacy and fields like history or economics, politics and religion, psychology and music. A very common use was in disability studies, particularly that collection I mentioned of deaf and hard of hearing members of the Ohio State University provided helpful resources for disability studies courses. Another aspect of the DALN for disability studies was in the technical considerations of effective captioning. Students had to think about and execute captions that would make the DALN submissions accessible to a variety of users. So one of the promising directions for future research about the DALN that our study suggests is that the DALN, we think, seems uniquely positioned to help sustain what researchers in our field are describing as the archival turn. So if you look at three C's or college English or uh, the, you know, the, the major journals, flagship journals in rhetoric and composition right now, there's lots of talk about archives, not only about the digital archive of literacy narratives, but all kinds of archival research. And we think that what's really unique about the DALN is that it seems uniquely positioned to help sustain this turn, not in the sense that it makes people just more interested in archival research or that it offers an opportunity to do that research, but that it offers support for a particular kind of perspective about archival research, and that is the pedagogical perspective. Because so often teachers and students are working alongside one another to work with the archive, we think that it, it uh, provides a unique opportunities for teachers to explore the, the many aspects that are involved with archival res- research, especially on the levels of development, implementation, and assessment of what counts as a good archive or what perspectives can you take working with primary sources and secondary sources. Just as the DLN is working in the archival turn, it also seems to connect really nicely to the public turn in composition studies, which likewise comes up in all the literature and conferences that are going on right now. It crosses sort of conventional boundaries by allowing students to be engaged in, engaged with participants from outside the university and creating this sort of larger community. While mostly scholars and students are using the DALN, that's actually not what it's for. It is meant to be a public space, and I think that mission is part of the potential for its future. Uh, That being said, of course, all of the opportunities that the DALN brings to students bring with it a fair amount of ethical considerations when you think of it as this public space. So obviously, this rhetorical space gives students a lot of opportunities to enrich their own composing with inspiration and invention and exigency. But it's interesting to note that although students are being inspired to produce literacy narratives for the DALN, they are very rarely actually required to submit their narratives. So they spend a lot of time reading other people's, but they're not necessarily putting theirs back. And that obviously makes sense, right? Teachers are not looking to force their students into putting these very often personal very personal narratives into public spaces. But on the other hand, students are viewing and analyzing others before crafting their own, and then they aren't necessarily returning the favor. So this, we think, is not an issue so much as a really productive point of conversation. It brings up some ethical tensions that can be really productive in the classroom. So when when instructors ask their students to engage these other narratives and look at these 
other contributors as essentially research subjects, it brings up some really interesting issues that are worth discussing. We thought that two productive ways to look at this that would connect the DLN pedagogies to other conversations would be to approach the DLN work as qualitative research or as documentary. Both of these fields have a very rich history of ethical considerations and conversations. And so we're not suggesting that these should be resolved or solved, um, but rather that those ongoing ethical challenges can help students and teachers critically examine the stakes of this public turn. What does it mean and how do we begin to negotiate it if it's something that we value and we do as a discipline? And I think Katie makes a really good point. And the thing that I think that we want people to keep in mind about our study is that although we were trying to understand the fundamental nature of the pedagogy that's growing up around the digital archive of literacy narratives, we weren't necessarily trying to categorize these things and suggest that these are the ways in which uh, people should necessarily engage with the DALN because so much of the work of this project like anything that we do uh, in terms of teaching and learning, is still very much in process. But our research indicates that the process of the Digital Archive of Literacy Narrative is leaning towards more participation, more involvement by both teachers and students. And we're hoping that our research can help facilitate that and provide more data for other researchers that want to understand the impact of the DALN on our profession. I think it's also important to note that the um, when we did this survey, Almost all of our respondents said that they would do it again. They often said, though, that they would do it differently, that they would continue to work with the DALN, but they would revise it for different courses, different contexts. And especially worth noting, no one said they wouldn't use it again. And so that really suggests that the, the potential and the promise is in the process, that this process of exploration that is ongoing and that we hope this study contributes to is very much an exciting point of exploration as the DLN is itself. Thanks for listening to our podcast about our March 2015 Computers and Composition article focusing on the pedagogy of the Digital Archive of Literacy Narratives. Of course, if you have questions about our study, feel free to reach out to us, or you can always find us at a DLN booth at an upcoming conference where we are likely collecting narratives to help grow the Digital Archive of Literacy Narratives. Thanks again. You heard from Kate Comer, who's assistant professor of English at Barry University. She edits the journal Harlot at harlotofthearts.org. You know about Harlot, don't you? It's such a cool publication. Okay. You also heard from Michael Harker, who's one of the current co-directors with Ben McCorkle of the DALN. He is assistant professor of English at Georgia State University. He also has a book, The Lure of Literacy, available now from SUNY Press. Plugs Play Pedagogy is written and produced by me, Kyle Stedman, who works at Rockford University. You can always contact me with your show ideas at kstedman or at plugsplaypedagogy at writingcommons.org. This show is licensed by a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 4.0 International License. Google that. You'll love it. Our theme music is by Cactus May. All the other music you heard in this episode is freely available at Overclocked Remix. That's ocremix.org. Check them out to hear all your favorite video game remixes. And check out my show notes to find out exactly which pieces I use, along with links to download them yourself. I'm recording in Rockford, Illinois, where everyone is saying that here at the beginning of March, it's going to start thawing out really soon. We're kind of waiting and waiting and waiting. And 
maybe I don't know. There's a literacy narrative there where where I could talk about the literacy of of learning to live in the snow after moving here from Florida. But I swear I like it. It's really pretty and nice sometimes. But right now it's just cold. Okay, this is plugs play pedagogy. <laughs>